BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Episode 427 of The Bowery Boys. The Chrysler Building and the Great Skyscraper Race. Hey, it's The Bowery Boys. Hey. Hi there. Welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers. And we are here today with a new spin on a classic New York story. The Great Skyscraper Race and the Origin of the Chrysler Building. Yes, the the Chrysler Building is one of the most famous skyscrapers in the world. A building that's so recognizable as a part of the New York skyline that it almost single-handedly evokes the era in which it was created, New York City in the Roaring Twenties. Yeah, the Chrysler Building is so important to New York City history that we chose it way back, Greg, in 2007 as the subject Mm -hmm. of one of our very first shows that we ever recorded. And at that time, in 2007, the Chrysler Building was the second tallest building in New York City, second only to the Empire State Building. Well, flash forward to 2024, and the Chrysler Building is now the 13th tallest building. It's tied for 13th place, Tom, with the New York Times Building. Did you know that? Mm, I didn't. (laughs) They're exact same size. And that's because in recent years, New York has been experiencing a, a new skyscraper surge. Today's fourth tallest building, one Vanderbilt, in fact, sits near the Chrysler Building, just on the other side of Grand Central Terminal. These types of, you know, recent building surges are happening in several cities. But here in New York, there's really something profound about it. Because it was almost exactly 100 years ago that a very similar skyscraper surge would give us not only the Chrysler Building, but also the Empire State Building and Rockefeller Center and many other classics. Within this surge, at the tail end of the Jazz Age, as the illicit champagne ran dry, um, there was actually truly a race between two buildings in particular, representing the old and new business districts of New York City, Lower Manhattan, or the Financial District, and Midtown Manhattan. This is the story of 40 Wall Street versus the Chrysler Building. And in particular, the story of two rival architects. And it all played out in the pages of the city's newspapers. 
a quote from the Daily Argus, a Mount Vernon, New York newspaper, in the fall of 1929, the skyscraper rage is increasing in the big city. One day it is announced that the tallest building in the world is to be erected on Wall Street. And yesterday it was announced that the tallest building will be erected in Midtown. It is a case of keen competition. But the big question is, when will a limit be reached? So join us as we follow along with this thrilling race, a race into the sky, the race to become New York's tallest skyscraper. So today's story is both huge and small. It's about something unbelievably massive, the New York skyline, and something far more intimate, a professional partnership and friendship, which turned into a rivalry. Yeah. And that partnership, um, which helped produce that skyline, was running into some real issues almost exactly 100 years ago right now in 1924. But before we get to that drama, can you remind us what the skyline even looked like up to this point? In fact, let's say 1920, the skyline of 1920. Well, in 1920, the city had, you know, already quite a number of tall buildings and even skyscrapers. I mean, there was the Singer Building, which reached 612 feet, uh, which had been completed in 1908. And that had been overtaken the next year by the Metropolitan Life Insurance Tower, which stood at 700 feet. The MetLife Tower, which we just talked about very recently in our Madison Square show last month. And it was the tallest building in the world for a time. And it was modeled on the Campanile in Venice. Well, the MetLife Tower itself would be overtaken four years later in 1913 by the Woolworth Building, uh, back down across from City Hall, which came in at 792 feet tall. So these were the tallest in New York in 1920, and were true standouts when you looked upon the New York skyline. Yes, but they were also surrounded by, you know, scores of other tall buildings, most of which had been made possible by the development of the steel-framed construction technique in the late 1800s. Now, steel-framed construction allowed for buildings to go up higher and faster, you know, using steel as a support instead of those thick masonry walls. And the taller the building, then the thicker the walls on the bottom floors, you know, needed to be to support it. And that usually also meant darker, too. They were darker inside because the windows would be so limited downstairs. So in addition to the steel-framed construction, there was another important innovation that permitted the buildings to get taller and A very important one, especially for people who happen to be renting or living on those very top floors. Of course, we're talking about the elevator. A 20-story building wouldn't be very much use without an elevator, right? Before elevators, buildings didn't really often go taller than six or maybe seven stories. Who wanted to walk up all those flights of stairs? Uh, And one of my favorite details is that before elevators, the top floors were usually the cheapest to rent, you know, for exactly Mm, the same mm -hmm. reason. You you were exhausted by the time you got up there. (laughs) 
the cheap penthouse apartment, of course. Um, great right. views, great views, but you were totally winded anytime you actually got into the place. And of course, this was before anybody tracked their steps, right? <laughs> so it just it didn't count. Now, now they'd be flying off the shelves. Sure. And the the Equitable Life Building at 120 Broadway, which was completed in 1870, was the first office building in the world to be designed with passenger elevators. And that only stood seven stories tall, with an additional two floors underground. So with these technological advances, tall buildings suddenly shot up all around town, but especially, of course, in the business district downtown. Yes, around Wall Street and City Hall, especially in the 1880s. And by the 1890s, these buildings were reaching even higher, you know, more than 20 floors tall. The Park Row building hit 30 stories in 1899. And meanwhile, around the same time, uptown, around that park we talked about, the Flatiron building opened in 1902 with 22 stories. You know, and then further advances in construction would allow them to go even higher, which would result in the fabulously tall and gorgeous Woolworth Building, which was designed by Cass Gilbert and which was completed in 1913 and stands a whopping 60 stories tall. I mean, 60 stories. This is like three times the number of floors from just like three or four decades before. But this also had the effect of turning entire neighborhoods, such as the financial district, into what seemed like a canyon of tall buildings. So, so tall, in fact, that they blocked out the sun and, you know, cut off fresh air. Yeah, which wasn't good at all for office workers or tenants or for building owners. I mean, how would you feel if your neighbor built a massive skyscraper right up against your building and blocked out all of your light and your fresh air? How would your tenants feel? Well, they probably wouldn't be staying there very long. (laughs) They would um, be checked out of the neighborhood. So just for the health of the city, something had to be done. And the city agreed, and in 1916, passed a new zoning law that regulated the height and the bulk of new buildings. And we did a full show on this very topic. We really geeked out on it. It was episode number 199, (laughs) How Tall Can They Go? But in short, once a building reached a certain number of floors, the design needed to be stepped back. That is, you know, moved back from the property line, which resulted then in new tall buildings having a kind of wedding cake style design. And this is like classic New York skyscraper design. You, you see these all over the city. This very specific zoning regulation would remain in effect for several decades, you know, through many decades of the mid 20th century. And there is one more important stipulation in that law. Once your building stepped back far enough to cover only 25% of your entire building site, well, then it could rise as tall as you would like. You could literally erect a tower straight up into the sky as long as you stayed on 25% of your lot. That 25% is like a key that unlocks the skyline. Once you know this detail... You see it everywhere, right? This 25% roll. They step back and then rise in a smaller tower. Yes, you see it everywhere, including in the subject of today's show, the Chrysler Building. 
and the Empire State Building and the RCA Building at Rockefeller Center, in fact. Yes, and this would remain, you know, on the books until the passage of the 1961 zoning law. All right, so getting back to the early 1920s here, the tallest building in the city, as you mentioned, was the Woolworth Building. Yes, and by the way, this was also about money, right? These super tall buildings were only going up because developers saw a need, you know, to create more office space in New York. And it's something that I don't want to lose sight of. Into the 1920s, so many industries needed some sort of presence in New York City because consumer habits were changing, you know, more people were working they were buying more products. There was a consumer revolution taking place. All of this required more offices. But Manhattan, of course, is geographically limited because it's on mm -hmm. an island. So in stepped the real estate developers then to construct the newest, most modern, and tallest office buildings in the city. And a tower like the Woolworth might you know, have actually contained some offices for Woolworth and his operation – but it mainly contained offices that would be rented out to other people. Exactly, which happens again in today's story with Chrysler. And of course, there would be no Chrysler building without its architect, William Van Allen. So what's his story? Well, Van Allen was born in Williamsburg, Brooklyn in 1882, his father operated a small manufacturing company called the New York Stove Works. But when William was just a teenager, his father was struck and killed by a Long Island Railroad train. And so William headed off to work as an office boy and su helped support the family. And then he apprenticed for the architect Clarence True, who designed and built upscale homes on the Upper West Side. Hmm. The 1890s was a time of rapid development for these types of row houses on the Upper West Side. It was a hot residential destination. And you know, many of these row houses are still standing today. So, so this was where young Van Allen received his architectural training. Yes, drafting luxurious Upper West Side row houses. Um, and then he also took classes at the Pratt Institute in Brooklyn, where he took more drafting courses. And a couple years later, he apprenticed with the firm Clinton & Russell, which mostly designed commercial structures and large apartment buildings. Um, and with that firm, he really learned all about you know, how to design large steel frame structures. So he may have worked on some of Clinton and Russell's big projects that are still with us today. Yes, including perhaps the Apthorpe, uh, the luxury apartment building at 78th and Broadway, and also the Langham Apartments, 73rd and Central Park West, both of which were built by Clinton and Russell around this time. But we know that he did work on the massive Hotel Astor, which opened in 1905 overlooking Times Square and contained a thousand guest rooms and which, you know, although its exterior was covered in stone, used steel frame construction. So Van Allen's career was taking off. He's in his early 20s and already working on some very significant projects. Well, yeah, and he was an apprentice for 10 years. Um, and he also joined other, you know, architecture groups and and studios, ateliers, you know, many of which were associated 
with the École de Beaux-Arts in Paris or had been started, you know, by master architects who had been trained at the École de Beaux-Arts. Oh, oh, well, the most important <laughs> school of architecture in the world, if I recall. Yes, um, it was. And it was one that promoted the classical Beaux-Arts style that was so popular and so dominant at the time. This was all about a return to classical forms in architecture, right? Roman, even Greek styles. I mean, and this is a place that like keeps coming back into our podcast over the years. I remember a recent show we did on Richard Morris Hunt, the mm -hmm. architect of the Gilded Age, who was the first American architect to train there. Mm -hmm. But could Van Allen afford to study in Paris? I mean, he was basically an intern living in Brooklyn. <laughs> who hasn't been there? No, there was no way he could afford it, but he could win it. Because the Society of Beaux-Arts Architects in New York sponsored an annual Paris Prize for architecture, the winner of which would receive a trip to Paris, all expenses paid, and three years of studying at the École de Beaux-Arts. He didn't win it the first time that he tried in 1906, but two years later, in 1908, he won that competition and headed off to Paris, where he studied in the left bank, you know, in the ateliers of prominent Parisian architects, and he really soaked up the city's Art Nouveau style that it was boasting, you know, that was new on the Parisian scene at the time. And then three years later, he was back in New York in 1911, he was nearly 30 years old, and he was really, finally, ready to make his mark. And these Paris days were pretty formative for him. He was exposed to all of these different Art Nouveau influences. Think of those entrances, for instance, uh, to the Paris Metro, right? Mm. I mean, this, this would all shape up to form a brand new 20th century modernist style. Yes, so many influences in Paris at the time, you know, from Art Nouveau to even the emergence of Cubism. A new modernism would, would emerge from this, which would eventually be called Art Deco. So this Paris detour in Van Allen's story was very important to him. And once he returned in 1911, he landed a job with the architects Werner and Windolf, whose offices, Greg, were located in the Metropolitan Life Tower um, on Madison Square. When he was there, it was actually the tallest building in the world? Yes, and it would be for another two years until the Woolworth came along. But by 1914, he wanted to do his own thing and strut his stuff. So he teamed up with an architect friend of his named H. Craig Severance. And Severance is, a, is more experienced. He's a few years older than Allen. Yes, he had been born in 1879, uh, three years before Van Allen, in a small town in upstate New York. He studied architecture in the U.S. and also in Paris. And then back in New York, he landed a job with Carrere and Hastings, designers of many high-profile buildings, including, of course, the, the main branch of the New York Public Library at 42nd Street. But then he headed off on his own in 1907. And seven years later, these two young men, William Van Allen and H. Craig Severance, would join forces and form a partnership that would last 10 years. You know, it's interesting that they would launch off on their own right here at around the same time that the 1916 zoning law then went into effect, which would change how everything looked. They formed their company just before it, in fact. 
And um, one of their first big commissions actually takes us back to Madison Square. It was the 16th floor Albemarle at 24th and Broadway. Remember how we discussed around this time the square going from this sort of glitzy residential and fancy hotel area, you know, into an office district? Well, Van Allen and Severance designed the office tower that replaced the old hotel Albemarle. And it was referred to as the Albemarle as sort of a tribute to the old hotel. And that building is still there, um, 1107 Broadway. It was considered quite modern at the time, but things even got more modern in the early 1920s, for example, when their 1920 design for the Bainbridge building on West 57th Street featured windows that, get ready, were not set back a few inches in typical style, but instead were laid flush with the facade of the building. Ooh, so no recesses. They were just this new daring style. So they're becoming a kind of leading architectural duo for a new modern style that was forging through the city. Yes, I mean, some of these commissions, I think, were pretty significant, right? Including the New York Bar Association building on West 44th Street, which is, again, still there. But there were other, you know, kind of curious commissions that came in as well, including in 1921, when a speculative developer named William Reynolds had bought up a row of four-story buildings at 42nd Street and Lexington, and he wanted to link them together into some sort of cohesive whole. So he hired Van Allen and Severance to design a new penthouse floor for the top of this group to kind of bring it all together. And you said 42nd and Lexington? Yeah. Van Allen would return to that same spot a few years later. Van Allen, but not Severance. And so what happened? Well, there was a kind of simmering tension between the men that developed over who, who deserved credit for their success. Severance had a knack for getting new projects, right? He was m- more the business guy and very social. Well, Van Allen had these amazing design skills and a kind of modern modernist vision. But perhaps, you know, Severance was also tired of Van Allen getting a lot of the credit for their projects. And maybe he also thought that Van Allen's designs were too modern, that they could have actually been holding them back. But for whatever reason, in 1924, after 10 years of a partnership, they decided to call it quits. And was it an amicable parting? (laughs) Oh, not so much. In fact, they fought each other in court over who got to hold on to the client list. Ooh, it's feud season three. (laughs) Well, (laughs) if only. (laughs) Well, they would never again collaborate on a project together, but they would most certainly compete to define New York's skyline during the jazz age. We'll get to that race to the top right after this. Listen to the latest episodes of For the Ages, the New York Historical Society's fascinating podcast, hosted by David M. Rubenstein. Historian Lindsay Chervinsky, author of Mourning the Presidents, joins David to discuss the deaths of presidents across U.S. history and how such losses and subsequent expressions of grief have affected American culture and politics. 
Then, David is joined by Orville Vernon Burton, the author of The Age of Lincoln, to inspect the arc of Abraham Lincoln's political career in the context of the ideologically tumultuous 19th century, painting a portrait of the five decades pivoting around his presidency and his place within them. And Amity Schles explores the personal and political characteristics that define President Calvin Coolidge's career and legacy, from the Boston police strike to the rapid social and economic changes of the Roaring Twenties. Coolidge's political career spanned and was marked by continuous upheavals in American life. That's for the ages. Available on Apple and Spotify. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms, and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. On April 19, 1995, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right-wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today. It's an American tragedy, but one I still remember very vividly. But there is so much more to the story than what you might remember. Take a deeper look into this moment of history with the podcast Homegrown OKC, hosted by Jeffrey Tubin and based on his book. The Homegrown OKC podcast is about better understanding the political environment in our country today. In particular, I found fascinating all the original archival footage used in the show, sounds which brought me back to that time, but with a richer understanding of events. These episodes were thrilling to listen to. That's Homegrown OKC. To listen, search for Homegrown OKC in your podcast app. That's Homegrown OKC. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondry's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states in Canada where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, The Underground Railroad, early and ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. And so these rising stars of architecture 
the Hall and Oates of the Jazz Age, H. Craig Severance and William Van Allen, have unamicably separated in 1924 and have gone off to develop their own projects. 100 years ago. And now these New York-based architects were free, finally, to create their own projects in a city that was really a kind of hotbed for architectural innovation. But maybe not the hotbed. You know, I don't think we need to convince people how much we love New York. So it is in that frame that I must say that probably the hottest architectural destination in America in 1924 was not New York, but Chicago. And in fact, I would even say that New York and Chicago had been basically wrestling for this particular title for at least three or four decades by this point. Well, Chicago had been the location of the World's Fair of 1893, which set the stage for you know the 20th century in terms of technology and architecture. Daniel Burnham, who helped define the look for the fair and, mm-hmm. and later designed the Flatiron Building, had been the most prominent architect in the United States. And Daniel Burnham was a legend to both Severance and Van Allen. He died in 1912, but a new generation of Chicago architects that were inspired by him were transforming the banks of the Chicago River. In the spring of 1924, right as Van Allen and Severance began finding new projects for themselves, Chicagoans were celebrating the opening of the Wrigley Building, designed by the successor to Daniel Burnham's firm, Graham Anderson Probst & White, which also happened to be the most successful architecture firm in Chicago at that time. Hmm, the Wrigley Building. Would this happen to be... Wrigley as in the chewing gum and and Wrigley Stadium? (laughs) Yes. uh, William Wrigley Jr., who owned both the Chicago Cubs and the company which would produce juicy fruit chewing gum. And since (laughs) since we're talking big name candy here, perhaps this is as good a time as any to go on a little tangent and talk about skyscrapers, not just as buildings, but as trophies. Perhaps even more specifically, skyscrapers as branding. Since the early days of the skyscraper in the 1880s and 90s, these buildings were often associated with either a business, a business person, or an industry. For instance, in 1890, the tallest building in the world was the New York World Building. The headquarters of Joseph Pulitzer's New York World newspaper. And then later in 1908, the rather peculiar Singer Building would become the tallest building in the world, and it was the headquarters of the Singer Sewing Machine Company. And then, of course, all those insurance towers that we just talked about around <laughs> yeah. Madison Square. Even the Woolworth Building, you know, which is still the tallest building in the world in 1924, you know, was really F.W. Woolworth, the king of the five-and-dime retail store, kind of showing off here. Mm -hmm. In a world a century ago where skyscrapers were so marvelous and yet also so rare, this is how you proclaimed the success of your company. In that respect, they were also great advertisements. And many of these newer skyscrapers began incorporating this modern Art Deco style. 
So the buildings stood for something modern, right? Even futuristic. And yeah, maybe that was a kind of branding, right? It reflected well back on the owners that they too were kind of modern or futuristic. But when I think Jazz Age, I would say that the future was not only being built vertically, but it was also arriving horizontally, racing by these skyscrapers on four wheels. For in this post-World War I period and into the Roaring Twenties, Americans became enamored with the automobile, which were had been around, of course, but were being upgraded and manufactured by this time at an enormous scale. Of course, cars would also soon allow people to move away from big cities, right, and live in rural areas or in suburbs and still work in the city. And the automobile changed big cities in other ways, too. In fact, we did an entire show last year on the story of parking in New Mm -hmm. York. It got ugly. It did. But one car manufacturer would have one very specific influence upon New York. And that story begins here. Again, in the year, we're going back to the year 1924. In that year alone, more than 3.5 million cars were being manufactured in the United States, and most of them by Henry Ford in Detroit. However, in January of that year, at an auto show at the Commodore Hotel here in New York, a new vehicle would make its debut, the Chrysler 6 B70, the very first automobile to carry the name Chrysler. And that name, Chrysler, is so synonymous with automobiles today. But there was, of course, really an actual Mr. Chrysler. Walter Chrysler, born in Kansas in 1875. As a young man, Chrysler worked his way up into a career of locomotive manufacturing and maintenance, which seemed to appeal to his own engineering curiosity. He was a tinkerer, a man who wanted to truly understand how things operated. In fact, in 1908, while he was living in Iowa at the time, he went up to Chicago for an auto show, fell in love with one particular car, then had that car shipped back to his home here in Iowa. Of course, I should note that he didn't know how to drive at this time. (laughs) Which, come on, wasn't really that unusual in 1908. Nobody had taken driver's ed when they were 16 years old. (laughs) No, no. And also, I mean, the, the cars were just so much more difficult to drive at the time. They were not at all what we would call user friendly. No, not not at all. To quote from Donald Miller in his book, Supreme City, quote, Instead of taking the car out for an experimental spin, he disassembled and reassembled it in his backyard barn, trembling with excitement to discover what made it run. He did this a half a dozen times before finally pushing it out of the barn for its inaugural run. With bug-eyed neighbors looking on, he engaged the clutch and the car shot forward and wound up in a neighbor's garden patch, unquote. (laughs) He really didn't know how to drive, did he? (laughs) No, no. (laughs) But he wouldn't be in the tomato beds for long, for this sparked an extraordinary career 
in this brand new technology biz. You know, it really was the main tech sector of its day, automobiles. And by 1919, Chrysler was the second most powerful man in the automobile business, of course, after Henry Ford. And he worked his way through Buick and General Motors. By this time, he had also traded Iowa for Park Avenue. And by 1923, he also had a grand estate out on the Long Island Gold Coast and Great Neck, New York. Quoting from Vincent Circio's biography of Chrysler, quote, This was the age of the Great Gatsby, and the Gold Coast was the location of that age. Walter Chrysler planted himself in the middle of it all. But though he was in it, he was not of it. Increasing his empire was never far from his mind, unquote. So Chrysler was already fabulously wealthy and influential by 1924 when the first car with his name debuted at an auto show at the Commodore Hotel. By the way, let's just point out that the Commodore Hotel adjoined Grand Central, right? It's, it's the Hyatt Grand Central Hotel today. But that is at 42nd Street and Lexington Avenue, which is a pretty important location for the story. His vehicles were not just affordable, but many found them also more attractive. I would say much more attractive than Ford's Model T's, more uniquely modern in the sense that the car reflected jazz age glamour and sleekness. By the 1930s, Chrysler would be America's most preferred car brand after Ford, and Walter Chrysler was heralded as one of the great figures of the age. In 1928, he was even declared Time Magazine's Man of the Year. So Walter Chrysler was a very big deal. He was a very prominent business leader. And bringing us back then to our story here, we've got skyscrapers in New York, you know, that are going up for newspapers and for sewing machine companies and for five and dime stores. So it seems inevitable that we would also then get one for an automotive company, especially one that was also led, you know, by an extremely wealthy New Yorker. Mm-hmm. Now, let's check in on William Van Allen, see what he's up to. Uh, it seems that when he severed ties with Severance, he got custody of one particular client, a dining chain called Child's Restaurant, one of the earliest American restaurant chains. Child's. This was, you know, this was kind of like fast food 1920s style. This is cafeteria style uh, dining, but but also very clean with, you know, white tiled floors and, and waitresses and crisp white dresses. It was a New York based chain, although it would later have dozens of outlets as far away as Missouri. So it was a national chain. Childs kept Van Allen on to give certain restaurants a modern flair. For instance, one Childs restaurant on Fifth Avenue and 48th Street that Van Allen designed had brown, not white interiors and a kind of languid art modern style. So, you know, they kind of fit the neighborhoods, essentially, mm-hmm. gave them an extra little like a little bit of glam. He also did shoe stores, though, had a storefront for Lucky Strike's cigarettes at 45th Street and Broadway in the heart of Old Times Square. You know, and because these were public establishments on very busy thoroughfares, these projects kept him relevant in the professional world as an architect. 
Sure. Although, just to counter that, I mean, designing a Lucky Strike shop or a cafeteria, it was hardly as prestigious as designing a skyscraper. Ah, but he wasn't out of that game for very long. For he was called up by a former client of his, someone that you mentioned earlier, that man, William Reynolds, who, by the way, was also a former state senator, as well as a speculative real estate developer. And the man who hired Van Allen and Severance to add the penthouse to that group of buildings over on 42nd and Lexington. Reynolds is an interesting guy, actually. You know, he had developed all sorts of properties in Brooklyn and perhaps most notably opened the Coney Island amusement park Dreamland. Oh, what a resume. Dreamland, of course, unfortunately, had been destroyed by a big fire in 1911. But now, in the 20s, he had much bigger aspirations. That plot at 42nd and Lexington, which he had already hired Van Allen and Severance to remodel, and which he had leased, believe it or not, from Cooper Union— the historic private college over down in Astor Place. Mm-hmm. Well, now he wanted to develop it into an office tower. It's what everyone was doing. Yeah. Well, he had obviously bigger plans, you know, for this cluster of four and five story buildings here. And these lots just happened to be across the street from the Hotel Commodore, where you also mentioned that Chrysler had just shown off his car. Yeah, there's just a lot of coincidences in this story, and they most of them seem to be related to this particular <laughs> intersection, right? It's very weird. Anyway, in early 1928, Reynolds commissioned Van Allen to design a 65-story office tower. He would be done by the summer, but Reynolds, who seemed a little bit like a flim-flam man, to be quite honest, couldn't shore up the funding. And so... It looks like it was it was going to fall apart. It seemed like Van Allen had done all of this work for nothing. But then, suddenly, into the picture rolls Walter Chrysler, who bought up those leases from Reynolds and then negotiated with Cooper Union to secure the site by the fall for his own skyscraper. So that is how Van Allen met Walter Chrysler. But can we just back up? You mentioned that Van Allen just designed a 65-floor office tower. Uh, uh-huh. How did Chrysler <laughs> feel about the plans that he had done here? Did, did he want to move forward with Van Allen's plans, or did he want to design his own building? Yeah, I mean, it wasn't really even guaranteed that Van Allen here would stick with the project. But in November of 1928, during a very extraordinary and passionate meeting between the two, the architect managed to win Chrysler over. But he had to make an entirely different set of plans for Chrysler, who told Van Allen, quote, I want a taller building of a finer type of construction, and it's your job to give the best that's in you, unquote. So Van Allen immediately went to work, months and months of back and forth with Chrysler, who was extremely involved, perhaps even a micromanager in the decision-making process here. Which could explain why the building has certain distinctive details, which I'll get to in a moment. But by this time, after almost a decade of prosperity, New York's skyline was really being transformed, you know, by these new tall buildings. 
it really felt like new skyscrapers were going up everywhere. And being a capital of capitalism, this resulted in a sort of friendly competition for the skies, one that grew among business leaders and architects, and one that grew more ruthless within the year. The frenzy had even, believe it or not, reached Brooklyn, where in March of 1929, the Williamsburg Savings Bank Tower would be completed in downtown Brooklyn. I mean, that is a very unusual building for that area of Brooklyn. At 512 feet and 41 stories, it would be heralded as Brooklyn's tallest building, and it would remain so well into the 21st century. Although it was a far cry, of course, from Manhattan's tallest, uh, the Woolworth Building at 792 feet. But with all of this frenzied construction going on, it seemed like it was only a matter of time before even that, the Woolworth, was conquered. And given Chrysler's you know, high profile and, let's face it, big ego, I imagine that he was pretty eager to take on the title of the world's tallest building. He and Van Allen were determined to do so. In March of 1929, construction began on the site, and the New York Times ran an article headlined, Chrysler Building 809 Feet in Height, World's Tallest Edifice to Cost $15 Million, topped by an artistic dome. A dome? Uh, yeah, the, the first design had a glass dome giving the effect of a jeweled sphere. Kind of trippy. It sounds beautiful or possibly a bit tacky. <laughs> yeah, well, luckily he changed it, as we know. However, there was one far bigger problem. Van Allen's former partner, H. Craig Severance, was now the architect of a new building down on Wall Street. And just a few weeks later, it was announced that Severance's building, quite coincidentally, would be taller than Chrysler's. Hmm, and thus would begin an extraordinary contest for the skies during one of the most extraordinary years in New York City history. We'll get to Chrysler versus 40 Wall Street after this. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a car. It's the two-door coupe that was there for your first drive. The hatchback that took you cross-country and back. And the minivan that tackles the weekly carpool. For the cars you couldn't live without, trust Amica Auto Insurance. Amica. Empathy is our best policy. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. 
Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. So let's back up a couple months. I just find this extraordinary. You mentioned that Van Allen and Chrysler had this, you know, passionate meeting uh, back in November of 1928. Right, when Chrysler decided to keep Van Allen on the skyscraper job. But he threw out all those old designs. That's right. What we didn't say is that demolition teams had already started clearing the land three weeks before. Okay, they would start working on the building's foundations in January of 1929 without any actual plans for the new construction in place. (laughs) Well, foundation is pretty important whether you are styling your face or (laughs) building a huge (laughs) construction project. (laughs) As we have learned from RuPaul. (laughs) But plans actually started taking shape. For example, the construction of an underground tunnel that would connect the Chrysler building to the subway line and to Grand Central Terminal. As George Kingston writes in his book, William Van Allen, Fred T. Lay, and the Chrysler Building, within a few months, quote, an eight to 10 foot high wooden fence had been erected around the site. And in the New York City tradition, it was pierced by openings through which sidewalk superintendents could watch the progress of the work. A temporary construction office was set up in the curb lane of 42nd Street, and a large sign was put up announcing the Chrysler Building being erected on this site, ready for occupancy spring of 1930. Walter Chrysler had gone public with the date of completion, and the pressure was on the builder Fred T. Lay and the architect William Van Allen to meet the deadline. In fact, Chrysler had announced in the New York Times in March of 1929 that the new building would have 68 stories and stand 809 feet tall. And they were saying that it would be ready in a year. No pressure. No pressure, anybody. (laughs) And meanwhile, Van Allen's old frenemy, H. Craig Severance, you know, at the same time had been hired, as you mentioned, by a developer named George Orstrom to design something groundbreaking down on Wall Street. Which was a congested area of the city, the most congested, perhaps. There were already quite a few tall buildings around Wall Street by this time. It was so dense and congested that it was actually hard to construct something super tall. You know, because of the setback law, you know, with its 25% rule, you would need to acquire many individual lots and stitch them together to form one really big lot, you know, upon which you could then raise, you know, a, a substantial tower. And so Orstrom quietly bought up these parcels and hired Severance to design a new tower. On March 2nd, 1929, days before the Chrysler announcement, the New York Times wrote, quote, 47-story building to rise on Wall Street. The proposed structure will be one of the tallest in the financial district. 47-story building. And then days later, Chrysler announced a 48-story building? 
<laughs> yes. And then the next month in April, another piece in the Times announced that Severance's Wall Street project had gotten even taller because the Manhattan Company, Aaron Burr's old bank, otherwise known as the Bank of Manhattan, which had abutted the building's lot, they had signed on to the project as well. And thus that gave Severance, you know, a larger footprint, which made going higher easier. The Times wrote on April 10th, quote, Wall Street building to top all in the world, 840-foot Bank of Manhattan structure to rise 48 feet above the Woolworth Tower. Edifice to have more than 63 stories capped by a sparkling finial. Ready, May 1st, 1930. Okay, so this 40 Wall Street building designed by Severance would then be... Let's work on my calculator here. Um, over 30 feet taller than Chrysler's building. Yes. And Walter Chrysler, as you mentioned, was a tough and shrewd businessman. And he was not about to simply hand over this honor of the world's tallest building to the Bank of Manhattan. So five days after the article announcing that 40 Wall Street would be taller, Chrysler called Van Allen back into his office and told him, to go higher, to do whatever he needed to beat out 40 Wall Street. And by the way, it was in process. <laughs> like, they had started work. <laughs> Still, beams were in place. Um, but now, Severance had announced his height, 840 feet. And so this was the number to beat, I guess. Yes, although Van Allen... You know, he knew that he should also plan for any kind of unexpected surprises, you know, or any sudden extensions to the project down <laughs> on Wall Street. Wow. I mean, which is, you know, this is smart uh, because severance would m almost certainly add to his plan as well once, you know, word got back to him that he was no longer the tallest building. Yes, in fact, to make sure that it, he won the race, Severance had added a decorative cornice and a, a flagpole and a glass lantern to the top of 40 Wall Street, which stretched it to more than 900 <laughs> feet tall. They're just like throwing bling on at this point to make it bigger, like that old glass lantern <laughs> trick. <laughs> it's just like more accessories. Well, Van Allen would actually cook up his own trick because in June... As the Chrysler building's, you know, lower floors were already taking shape, he devised his own secret plan. He planned to construct a spire, a vertex, inside the top of the Chrysler building. And then, once he was certain how tall 40 Wall Street would go, he could then hoist his spire up as high as he needed to raise it in order to go higher. I just love that this is the driving concern. Like, architects have serious concerns, like, like, like the look and the layout and the features of the new building and making sure it doesn't tumble over. So many things, but no. In the height race, this, this is the thing that everyone's focused on. Like, how high can we make our building? Yeah, I mean, the other conversations, right, about the fabulous Art Deco designs of the Chrysler building, you know, the massive marble lobby that was topped by this enormous mural that would be painted by Edward Trumbull, that wouldn't get as much press. Now, the innovations in heating and cooling, the, the banks of, <laughs> of passenger elevators that were outfitted with, you know, intricate inlaid wood designs, all of that 
all of these new features of this Art Deco masterpiece, that would all take a backseat to something, shall we say, more primal, a power play, right? A competition between two men about who could go bigger. I mean, this is a tale as old as time with newspapers who just love a horse race. They turn everything into a horse race in order to sell newspapers. It made excellent copy, although we shouldn't trivialize it, too, because it it still was important, you know, if you were the owner of the building. I mean, there were business reasons why you wanted to boast that you had the tallest skyscraper, because that title, the honor, would actually attract renters to your building. Who wouldn't want to rent an office in the world's tallest building? And the Chrysler building just kept going higher. By July 26th, the steel structure hit the 45th floor. By August 30th, it had reached the 61st floor. And at the same time, the crews were busy, you know, just beneath them, putting in the bricks and the plaster and laying tile. As the building rose higher and higher, and was eventually topped by a series of radiating domes to 77 floors in mid-October. Radiating domes. Can I just point out, by the way, that Van Allen's design for the Chrysler building is, any way you slice it, it's just cooler. It's just more interesting than 40 Wall Street. It's, It's more beautiful in so many ways. It shines. Yeah. Severance's design for 40 Wall Street is considered modern French Gothic. It's classic. But Van Allen's style for the Chrysler building is Art Deco. And you mentioned it shines. It shines because it incorporated what was then a brand new style of stainless steel that had been developed in Germany called Neurosta because Mm. it doesn't Rust. <laughs> no no rusta. No <laughs> on that building, that's no for rusta. sure. No <laughs> rusta. Yeah. And it really sparkles up at the top of that building on its crown. I mean, it still does today. Yes, yes. The building's central tower steps back a few times, right, in order to follow the 1916 zoning law. And then that final tower is topped not by the dome, um, the jeweled dome that you mentioned Mm -hmm. in the original (laughs) plan, but by a new kind of dome or an arch that's then repeated, one on top of the other, seven times, getting smaller and smaller, forming a crown that's sort of covered with a radiating sunburst pattern. And as you mentioned, it's covered in that Neurosta steel that actually lights up at night. It's illuminated. Yeah, it's glorious. I mean, of course, those seven arches also look somewhat like automotive wheels, which I think is kind of appropriate. Is that just me? Oh, Van Allen didn't stop winking at his patron there. No, he (laughs) Uh he also incorporated hubcaps and radiator caps, all tributes to Chrysler's automobiles. He put them all across the facade, really personalizing the building, you know, for its owner in a way that's quite unlike any other in the city. All right. So meanwhile, what's happening downtown on Wall Street? Well, 40 Wall Street was still going up. It was slightly behind the Chrysler building. But Severance thought that he had won the race and, you know, with his flagpole and lantern trick. And that his building, which would be over 900 feet tall, would take the prize. But 
on October 23rd, 1929, Van Allen was ready to pull off his coup de grace. Rumors had already circulated that a spire or a vertex would top his building. But it was rumored to be 60 feet tall, which would not have really changed anything, and 40 Wall Street would still be taller. But instead, Van Allen had planned a 185-foot-tall vertex. On that day, on October 23, 1929, inside the top domes at the pinnacle of the building, this vertex was assembled and hoisted up into position to be riveted in place by a fearless group of workmen. Neil Bascom writes in his book, Higher, A Historic Race to the Sky and the Making of a City. The men had to erect the vertex 860 feet in the sky, raising it up through the fire tower and securing it to the dome's top while moving quickly about the narrow cantilevered platform that offered space for one misstep, but definitely not for two. A gust of wind or the snap of a cable threatened to send the vertex pitching headlong into traffic below. The men were ready, though. The signal was given to the Derrick men. The streetcar vendors, secretaries, and business executives had no idea of the danger that lurked above them. The papers hadn't been alerted. Only the construction photographers, who documented the building's progress every few weeks, had been informed to have their cameras loaded with film this day. The vertex rose slowly from the dome, an American flag attached to its tip. Regardless of his faith in the design calculations or the confidence of the workers whose job it was to lift the vertex, Van Allen, quote, watching it from Fifth Avenue and 42nd Street, had four sinking spells, continuous vertigo, and three attacks of mal de mer. The Derrick gangs and iron workers shouted instructions to one another as the cables fed through the Derrick's wheels and the vertex lifted higher and higher. Five feet, then 10 feet, then 20, then 50, then 100 feet. At last, the entire length of the spire revealed itself like a butterfly from its cocoon. 90 minutes from the first signal, the vertex was up and secured at 1,046 feet over the city. They had topped out, but Greg, ironically, there was no big celebration. Nothing was stated to the press. They actually didn't want to draw any attention to this achievement because work was still going on downtown at 40 Wall Street. They would wait for that job to finish, and then they would make their claim. And until then, they would just have to wait. I guess if they didn't say anything, nobody would have to know how tall it was. You, you couldn't just look up and tell immediately. Yeah, nobody down on the street, you know, was any wiser. Bascom quotes Van Allen explaining that, quote, we'll lift the thing up and we won't tell him anything about it. And when it's up will just be higher. That's all. And that's exactly what they did. So when did 40 Wall Street top out? Three weeks later, on November 12th, 1929, 
And at 925 feet, they thought that they had won the race. And the press called, you know, 40 Wall Street the winner. It wasn't until four days later that an article ran in an industry paper, the Daily Building Report, explaining that they'd all been had and that Van Allen and the Chrysler Building had won the race. And the news spread fast. The Brooklyn Daily Eagle reported on the 18th. Headline, thrilling Bank of Manhattan Chrysler duel ends with ladder winner by 105 feet. Quote, a thrilling duel between two young architects fought to a finish with pencil and blueprint in the secrecy of their respective offices for the honor of building the highest structure in the world has been won by William Van Allen with the placing of the flagpole atop the Chrysler Building at 42nd Street and Lexington Avenue, unquote. That was in November 1929, but neither of the buildings would be completed or opened until May of the following year, in 1930. That six-month window left Severance, you know, tempted to pull off a trick on 40 Wall Street to raise it even higher, although he ultimately declined And instead, he would insist in the press that, you know, 40 Wall Street was always taller, you know, in terms of usable, rentable space. It was taller than the Chrysler building. But it seemed that nobody was really interested. And incredibly, the buildings opened just one day apart from each other in May 1930. 40 Wall Street opened on May 26th and the Chrysler building on May 27th. So I suppose that you could make the case, Greg, that 40 Wall Street was the tallest open building in the world for one day. Because on May 27th, 1930, that honor passed to the Chrysler Building. Well done, everyone. But hold your horses, because the skyscraper race wasn't quite over. So the Chrysler Building would officially open on May 27th, 1930. And at its opening ceremony was former Governor Al Smith to celebrate its historic placement as the tallest building in the world. But this particular battle between these two skyscrapers is but one of many, many, many changes to the skyline, which occurred in this same period of time in just two years. So much had changed, you know, between the time that Van Allen was first hired in 1928 to the day that the Chrysler building first opened in 1930. Yes, these buildings were joined in the skies by many other skyscrapers. This period was the absolute height of the surge. You could almost say the skyline was volatile, for it was in constant change during this period. Now, some of the new residents to the skyline here in Midtown included the 632-foot Mercantile Building at 10 East 40th Street at 5th Avenue, completed in 1929, the 673-foot Lincoln Building, 42nd and Madison, completed in 1930, and the Channon Building at 42nd and Lexington, which opened on January 23rd, 1929, at 680 feet. All of those, by the way, 
are near the Chrysler building. And the Channon building is so beautiful, really the, the height of Art Deco glam. It's, it kind of feels like an Art Deco cousin, right, of the, <laughs> of the Chrysler building. And you shouldn't forget that building when you're touring around the area. There's obviously so much great architecture. And they're both right next to Grand Central Terminal, of course, just to add to the beauty. Mm-hmm. In fact, this was all a development area um, that was known as Terminal City, which was designed to be a new business district based around the train station and was already well on its way, of course, by the time that the Chrysler opened. So the Chrysler is just a one part of this larger puzzle. And of course, I have to mention the building that's just north of Grand Central, facing up Park Avenue, the building known as the New York Central Building, completed in the fall of 1929. At 565 feet, it's a bit shorter than some of these others we've talked about, but it's designed by Warren Wetmore is so striking and its location, which is standing right there behind Grand Central at the foot of Park Avenue, makes it one of New York's most beloved buildings. You cannot escape it, actually. Today, that building is known better as the Helmsley Building. And it was renamed for the real estate mogul Harry Helmsley in the 1970s. I once tempted in there in the 1990s. Oh. How about you, Greg? <laughs> I, I've never been inside of it, but I'm glad you have. <laughs> One of us is represented in its corridors. <laughs> it's one of the most picturesque buildings in the city, and it used to be a lot more picturesque before the Pan Am MetLife building was built just next mm-hmm. to it in the 1960s. So all of those skyscrapers then were going up or were, were being completed as the Chrysler building was under construction. Can you imagine what a pain in the neck it was as a commuter into or <laughs> yeah. out of Grand it's Central. Was this same kind of you know surge in construction happening in lower Manhattan? Oh, it, it was actually happening everywhere. Manhattan was just a gigantic construction site. Okay, so down near 40 Wall Street, you know, our Severance building, they were being joined by all sorts of newcomers in what would then be called the financial district. But I need to add Another big zone of construction at this time that we haven't mentioned because it's going to parallel something that's happening in present day today. I'm speaking about Central Park West, which was entirely transformed during this exact same period, okay? With the 22-story Beresford Apartments in 1929, the 400-foot San Remo in 1930, and the 390-foot El Dorado, which was finished in 1931. But these were not office buildings, of course. These, were, these are glamorous apartment towers. So then, in other words, everything was going higher. Residential, commercial, everything. Yes, New York was having just an obsession with the skyscrapers. But Tom, we've had our head in the clouds long enough in this show, because on that great week when the Chrysler building topped out, you know, that week in October of 1929, situations were developing that ensured that the great Jazz Age building surge would grind very suddenly to a halt. I'm referring, of course, to the stock market crash of 1929, Black Tuesday being on October 29th, 1929, a total financial meltdown and a catastrophic event which signaled the start of the Great Depression. Although it would take months 
for most of these construction projects to really feel the impact. The Chrysler building had literally just topped out days before. Many of these projects were were ongoing or they were just getting started. Yeah, of course, you know, a great many projects that were in the lineup were in the works were canceled or were severely altered and shortened. And then there were just a handful of buildings that were just getting started when this occurred. And those buildings proceeded as normal. You know, after all, nobody can predict the future. And so on those projects, they just kept working. The skyscraper was still considered the great symbol of the future, after all. We were all obsessed with it in the late 20s. It inspired hope now at a time when many desperately needed it. Now, remember how I just name-dropped Al Smith a few minutes ago on the show? Yes, the former governor at this point who had been present for the opening of the Chrysler building. Uh Uh-huh. Well, he was also deeply involved with his own development further south at 34th and 5th Avenue, a project that would begin construction in March of 1930. It was developed by several investors. While his finances were little affected by the stock market swings from the crash, many others investing in the building were affected. And then As a result, the project had to take in loans from the Metropolitan Life Insurance Company. Back in the story here. And a company that knows a thing or two about skyscrapers. Mm -hmm. But Smith's project then had progressed to a point where they just couldn't back down. Exactly. So 13 and a half months later, on May 1st of 1931, Smith's project here, known as the Empire State Building, officially opened. Now the tallest in the world and knocking the Chrysler building to second place. And specifically by design, you know how there there was like a rivalry between 40th and Chrysler? Well, something a little bit was going on here too. For a mooring mast designed for the possible embarkation of airships was stuck to the top of the Empire State Building plans after the Chrysler building opened, okay? And that that mooring mast would take the height to 1,250 feet. <laughs> it is truly our favorite detail about the Empire State Building <laughs> yes. story. Thankfully, no Zeppelins would ever dock up there, thank God. <laughs> Rising a quarter of a mile straight up into the clouds, the 86-story Empire State Building is clinching its title of the world's tallest structure, by adding a 200-foot mooring mast for dirigibles. It towers on the site of the old Waldorf Astoria Hotel. 46,000 tons of steel are being used in its construction. Fearless workmen risk their lives to complete the $55 million project. If the famous 50-story Metropolitan Life Building were placed on top of the 35-story New York Central structure, the two together would just about equal the height of the Empire State Building. From its platform, visitors will be able to look down on the New York skyline with Gotham landmarks in the Midtown section, including the Fifth Avenue building and the spired Chrysler building, dwarfed by comparison. Viewed from the 68-story Chrysler Tower, 800 feet above street level, the Empire State Building, a giant of steel and stone, dominates the skyline, a mark of 20th century progress. But of course, the effects of the, the Great Depression would, in time, arrive at the Empire State Building. Being the the world's largest building, 
meant that you had a lot of office space to rent out, or in the Empire State Building's case, to not rent out. It sort of reminds me of the New York real estate landscape in the year 2020, actually, when we Mm. had all these brand new office towers that were going up all over the city, all with open office spaces, you know, that was the modern thing at a time when, you know, people with more desk based jobs in those buildings were beginning to work more from home. Mm-hmm. It was a sudden employment change, which led to new projects sitting empty. And so that struggle to fill office spaces that the Empire State Building was dealing with, was that also being felt over at the Chrysler Building? Not at all, or, or not nearly as badly, let's just say. They had secured many leases before the crash and were about three-fourths filled, actually, by 1935 its biggest renter of office space being, perhaps not a surprise, um, the oil company Texaco. (laughs) So this skyscraper that actually looked like a sleek new automobile literally had a full tank of gas. (laughs) Yes, it did. (laughs) In fact, it was because of Texaco that Chrysler added a luxury restaurant on the top floors of the building that was basically used as an executive dining hall, a restaurant appropriately called the Cloud Club, because it was up in the clouds, Tom. Chrysler would have lunch here every day, and but it was also open in the evenings. It was very upscale, a big draw for politicians and Broadway stars. I mean, don't you want to go dining at some place called the Cloud Club? So futuristic. Like right now, please. Yes. yes. Uh-huh. But I thought that you had actually written Clown Club, <laughs> um, <laughs> which I would also want to go to. Actually, that would be a way. good place to eat too. Yes. But a restaurant on the upper floors of an Art Deco Midtown skyscraper. Where have I heard of that before? <laughs> well, the Cloud Club wouldn't be the first restaurant in a skyscraper in New York, of course, but it would be the highest. By 1932, the Depression has shut down almost all of New York's major construction projects, except for one, the massive complex of buildings being funded by J.D. Rockefeller Jr. about a half mile away from the Chrysler Building. In 1933, the crown jewel of Rockefeller Center, a Raymond Hood-designed 66-story skyscraper, opened its doors to tenants, including one who would lend the building its name, RCA, the RCA building. And two years later, at the top of that building, one could dine in their own restaurant, the Rainbow Room. So you could then ostensibly wave to somebody from the Rainbow Room over to the Cloud Club, (laughs) right? Yes, uh (laughs) uh-huh. Clouds, rainbows, given like a My Little Pony vibe here. Yeah, where was the Unicorn Club? <laughs> where was the Unicorn Club? Well, I'm hoping that the that the architect, William Van Allen, had a chance to celebrate in one of these clubs. <laughs> Unicorns, clouds, or what have you. Well, sadly, though, he would soon not want anything to do with the Cloud Club or the Chrysler Building or, you know, really anything with Walter Chrysler. 
there suddenly erupted a very messy legal battle between Chrysler and Van Allen over payments the architect thought were due to him. While architects were considered the heroes of the great skyscraper race here, in the end, they were creating real estate for others to profit from. On January 23rd, 1931, several New York architects gathered for a gala at the Hotel Astor, thrown by the Society of Beaux-Arts Architecture, which featured a Skyline of New York costume contest. And many architects that participated in this race came to the gala dressed as the building that they were associated with. Most dramatically, William Van Allen was there, (laughs) dressed as the Chrysler building. Very fun costume. He looks like he would be a great time at a costume party. But in reality, he must have actually been in a very chilly mood. For by April of 1931, he settled with Chrysler and received his fees, but also got a lot of negative publicity over the whole matter. And believe it or not, William Van Allen would eventually leave architecture for good. To quote from a New York Times article written by Neil Bascom, quote, By his death in 1954, his name was absent from architectural circles. The Chrysler Building was his greatest accomplishment and the one that guaranteed his obscurity, unquote. And as for H. Craig Severance, well, there was no skyscraper work for him either. Eventually, he did move on to government commissions, moving to Point Pleasant, New Jersey in the 1930s. Severance died in 1941. And whatever happened to 40 Wall Street? We got so excited talking about the Chrysler building that we nearly forgot about 40 Wall Street. (laughs) We did. Neither building, I would say, actually had much of a significant history after this. They are, in the end, office towers in a sea of office buildings in Manhattan. I will add, though, that on May 20th, 1946, an army transport plane struck 40 Wall Street, which killed five people, a tragedy which occurred at the Empire State Building just 10 months before, incidents which led to flight restrictions over the city. As for the Chrysler building, by the 1950s, the Chrysler family had sold the building. And throughout the decades, the building, it's just basically been sold and resold to a variety of different interests. This is sort of the story for both of these buildings, actually, each becoming aging office properties. Today, 40 Wall Street is known as the Trump building, as the Trump organization began leasing the building in the 1990s. And in 2019, the Chrysler building was purchased for $150 million by the Austrian property developers Signa Holding and the New York firm RFR Holding in a joint deal. Although, Tom, breaking news, as of recording date, Signa is selling their 50% stake. Whoa. Although, I'm sorry, back up, $150 million Uh for the Chrysler building like five years ago? It doesn't, that kind of seems like a bargain price, right, For, for a New York City icon. Well, let me illustrate how absurd real estate prices are today. In comparison, New York City's most expensive penthouse apartment, okay, just a penthouse, lists for $195 million. (laughs) Wait, for an apartment? Where? 
<laughs> yes. How is that even possible? <laughs> well, before I reveal that answer, Tom, that penthouse apartment in the sky, let me take us now up to present day, right? So 2024, date of recording. Past, of course, other zoning law changes, past other skyscraper surges through through the decades, past other architectural styles and innovative new ways of construction from a world of elegant art deco to our modern world of sleek, gravity-defying skyscrapers that are so tall and narrow and suddenly ubiquitous upon the skyline that they are actually referred to by a different name. The word skyscraper is will not suffice. These buildings are called super talls, and a new skyscraper race has been occurring in New York City with two really big differences here. First of all, the race is taking place in at least four boroughs of Greater New York, the waterfront of Queens and the Bronx, downtown Brooklyn, and many areas of Manhattan. For instance, remember much earlier in the show when I said that the Williamsburg Savings Bank Tower became the tallest building in Brooklyn in 1929? Well, flash forward 95 years. Today, it is the 12th tallest building, and the 11 buildings taller, which look down upon it, were all built after 2009. And number two, most of these buildings are largely residential, not commercial. Yeah, it's re- it's really jarring. Just the sheer number of towers that are going up so quickly and changing the skyline. It's like a, there's a new one every day I walk out of my apartment. There's like a new super tall somewhere in the distance. <laughs> well, to back up here, in 2014, One World Trade Center opened in Lower Manhattan, becoming New York's and America's tallest building. And so at that time, then, the Empire State Building became number two. The Bank of America Building at 42nd and 5th was third. And then the Chrysler Building was fourth. Okay, that's what the sky looked like in 2014, just 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. At around that time, a new surge of construction began in New York, largely concentrated south of Central Park near and along 57th Street. So that $175 million penthouse that I mentioned earlier, that is at the very top of New York's second tallest building today called the Central Park Tower. Happily in its advertisements, brandishing the title of the tallest residential tower in the world, or at least at the date of our recording right now. These new super talls have transformed Upper Midtown, and today many call this area Billionaire's Row. Basically, you know, name for the type of people who can actually afford to live in these buildings, Mm -hmm. um, these ultra-luxurious apartments in the sky, which dwarf the residential buildings, you know, that line Central Park West today. Buildings that had been built back in the 1920s skyscraper boom. Now, we're not architectural critics. Um, We have opinions, though. (laughs) Some of these new super talls are quite boring. A few of them are truly magical. One or two of them are, quite honestly, inspiring. And a couple of them are just, what I would say, rude. Yeah, they they won't return our calls. (laughs) They they won't. (laughs) But none of them, however, will ever be as beloved as the Chrysler building. I will guarantee that, actually. The Chrysler remains the most photographed, most recognizable building in New York City, save perhaps only for the Empire State Building. 
it feels like it belongs in a way to all of us who live here. Like it's part of our daily existence as New Yorkers. And that may be a product of the architecture of the Art Deco period, which just gets more extraordinary to look at the further away that we get from the Jazz Age. Or to quote from the writer Chester Jones in 1931, quote, In the streetcar, ordinary folk dispute the relative heights of the Bank of Manhattan building and the Chrysler building. Cultivated people who, for so long, regarded the skyscraper as a fearful monstrosity have come to admire it. And it may be said without contradiction that in America, architecture is regarded as the foremost of the arts. Visit our website, BoweryBoysHistory.com, for a truly glorious assortment of photographs from this period, and of course, a few images of our modern landscape. Greg, I think that you are planning, actually, to sort of overcome your fear of heights, (laughs) and you're going to be heading to a couple of observation decks, are you not, for some social media posts? Yes. (laughs) <laughs> you sound so thrilled. <laughs> well, yeah, since they won't let me take a hot air balloon or a Zeppelin through Midtown Manhattan anymore, I'll I'll be scaling a couple of those New York great observation decks that are many of them are glass, I think. I mean, we all have to I'll have to take some Xanax before those. <laughs> um, but I'm going to cuz I want to see the skyline up close. Okay. So you can see some of my adventures this week on Instagram, of course, Facebook and threads and various social media. We also want to thank all those who support us on patreon.com, where for a small donation each month, you help support our show and we get you some extra audio. For example, in the form of Side Streets, a conversation show between Tom and I about the topics of the day and relevant topics from the the podcast. Uh, Recent episodes have actually been about Williamsburg and Madison Square Park. And maybe we can get a hot debate started over on Patreon.com slash Bowery Boys about patrons' favorite skyscrapers in New York City. Yeah. Because not everybody feels the same way. You can join the fun over at patreon.com slash Bowery Boys. I guess you could say it's Architecture Week here in the Bowery Boys media universe. The latest episode of the Gilded Gentleman podcast hosted by Carl Raymond takes a deep dive into Beaux-Arts architecture with special guest architect and author Philip James Dodd. That's the Gilded Gentleman podcast. Go listen, go subscribe, find it in the same places that you find our podcast. And of course, join us in the streets for one of our small group walking tours or a private walking tour for your group or family or organization over at BoweryBoysWalks.com. Spring is starting up here soon, Um, but even right now, we have wonderful uh, walks that are taking place every single weekend, and we can do private walks any day of the week. We'd love to have you join us and walk through time over at BoweryBoysWalks.com. And a special thanks to Kieran Gannon, who edited today's show. So thank you very much for listening. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. 
nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.